0: We live in a violent and pitiless world. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. The month of April was a particularly bloody example of this violent and pitiless world in which we live. It was in the month of April that a quiet college student opened fire on his classmates and professors, killing 32 before he turned the gun on himself. It was in the month of April, the nation of Turkey, three Christian workers were found at their Bible study tied to their chairs with their throats slit, having been tortured by some young men whom had pretended to have interest in the Gospel. These are just two rather dramatic examples of man's inhumanity to man. But each one of us Witnesses the same seeds of violent behavior day by day. Standing in line at the supermarket, the deceit of office politics, the senseless acts of violence that go on when you put two. A couple of two-year-olds together in a small room and leave them unattended, right? Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we just all get along? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. where I will read, beginning at verse 18, the Apostle Paul will answer the question of why can't we all just get along? Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 1, the book of Romans, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving unmerciful and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them we have been looking for some number of weeks at this text under the title of the deep dark descent of man we said that when Adam fell he took humanity with him over the edge of the abyss and we have been plunging headlong down into the deep dark recesses of sin ever since that it is woven within our nature it is it is Part of the very fiber of who we are, and it manifests itself in a multitude of ways. Apostle Paul, like a prosecuting attorney, has been building his case, piece of evidence upon piece of evidence, that all might fall under the indictment. No one escapes. This morning, we're going to explore the fourth and final aspect of this. What I'm calling a fourfold fall of man. So we might just begin, just begin to understand the deep, dark descent into depravity of which all of us have partaken. I read the whole text for you this morning because I want to keep this together as a unit. It's a long passage. We've been at it for a number of weeks. But I don't want to be fragmented. I want you to see there's a progression that goes on here in this fall. It begins first with the intellectual fall of man in verse 21. When man turns from God and His revelation of Himself in His creation, they plunge down. Man has fallen intellectually. Secondly, man has fallen spiritually (verses 22 and 23). That is, they now substitute a multitude of idols for the one true God. Having abandoned the knowledge of the true God revealed in the creation, they are substituting, and that is, all of our wretched hearts are substituting idols. Third, man has fallen sexually. That good and and perfect gift given by God at creation has been twisted and bent and deformed until that which is to be beautiful has become that which is ugly, perverted, enslaving, corrupting. Finally, man has fallen socially. Man has fallen socially. Society is broken because it is made up of broken people. Things don't work like they're supposed to, like they were intended. Paul begins his indictment here of the social fall of man in verse 28 by repeating this refrain that has occurred two other times about man's rejection of God and and the linkage between God's rejection of man. He says in verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. That's the rejection of man by God. It's the third time it has occurred. Verse 24, God has given them over. Verse 26, God has given them over. Verse 28, God has given them over. Having refused the light of God's revelation in creation... Substituting idolatry instead, God has given humanity over to the worst forms of depravity. People dishonor their bodies. They dishonor their minds. They indulge in the most vile and degrading of passions. We're talking about what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity. It's not, ju- it's not that everyone is as bad as they could be. That's not what total depravity means. It's not that you and I are as bad as, it, as we possibly could be. What it means is that the seeds of wickedness lie within our heart such that we are as bad off as we could be and every one of us is capable of every one of these manifest evils. No one is immune. None of us is off limits. There is no limit to the wickedness of your heart and of mine. Jesus said that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Yet as fallen creatures, John Gershner had it right when he said, Man as sinner hates God, hates man, and hates himself. He would kill God if he could. He does kill his fellow man when he can. And he commits spiritual suicide every day of his life. We're in bad shape. We are in bad shape. Let's unpack here the social fall of man. The Spirit of God might show us just how bad off we really are. There are three aspects of this social fall of man. I've given them to you on a handout. I'll have them up here on the screen. The first aspect is the societal fall of man caused? What causes the societal fall of man? Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. There is an abandonment by God of the human race. And in particular, the sin that motivates this part of God's abandonment is the refusal of mankind, verse 28, to acknowledge God any longer. That is, in context here, they don't consider God as worthy of their thought. He's not worthy of their attention. We decide to live life without Him. We don't need Him, is the idea. Man in his fallen nature has decided he doesn't need God and so God turns him over to a life without Him. What kind of a life can you make for yourself when you refuse the only source of truth in the universe and turn from it? What kind of a life will you build? Fallen humanity has refused to take God seriously in the moral realm. That's what Paul's going to talk about here. We have rejected God as not being worthy of our time to reckon with, not worthy of our consideration. We don't need Him. And so we've been delivered over into a condition where our minds are now fit only to be rejected as worthless. That's what Paul says. Verse 28. Given over to a worthless, a depraved mind. That is a a mind that is useless for its proper purpose. Instead of being a reliable guide to moral behavior, the mind is now corrupted and fallen and leads us into all manner of iniquity. The basic term that Paul uses here, verse 28, depraved mind docmos uh, rather is um, it means or, or it's a a, a a word that speaks about not being able to withstand the test it's a metallurgical term a and it's commonly refused to or refers to metals that are rejected after they've been refined that is that they're so full of impurities after the refining process that they're worthless and they're thrown out on the slag heap so the idea here is of worthlessness and uselessness. And when it's applied to the mind, that is the seed of our human reason and thinking, including our moral choice, the idea is that the mind is so corrupt it becomes useless and untrustworthy. That's what Paul is telling us. That the human mind, because it doesn't have a place for God in its thinking anymore, in the establishment of our ethics and our moral choices, that that our mind has now become just fit for the slag heap, thrown away. Humanity is, is like a ship caught on a reef. And the waves of sin pound against the hull incessantly, battering and smashing it until it's destroyed. The only cure for such deep-seated moral blindness and perversity is for the mind to be renewed by the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Paul's intense... Discussion and, and exposition of the human condition in the first three chapters of this book are all to lay the foundation for the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, if you don't know how bad off you are, then you don't need a Savior. Once you come to understand what it, how bad you really are, how deeply you are affected, how wretched your life without Christ is, then you will flee the cross as your only hope the only hope for the depraved reprobate debased human mind is the renewing of the mind through Jesus Christ a renewing that begins at regeneration and continues subsequently through a spirit-filled life Paul will discuss in detail when we get to chapter 12 The renewing of the mind in Christ. Over the years I've been asked by a number of people that if somebody has a reprobate mind, do they know it or not? Does somebody know whether their mind has now become reprobate? My answer is that if a person is concerned whether their mind is reprobate or not, then they haven't gotten that far yet. Okay? If somebody is concerned about the seriousness of their sin, then they are not totally given over to it yet. What is the cause? The fall of society? It's a simple diagnosis. We've locked God out. We've locked God out. And that leads to the next aspect, which is the societal fall of man characterized. Paul now characterizes for us a broken society. Now, we have spent a fair amount of time in the last few weeks talking about sexual sin. And maybe maybe some of you have avoided such entanglements. and So in a sense, you feel like you haven't really been directly confronted. Today's your turn. Okay? Today is your turn. By the time we're done with this long list of assorted vices, you will find yourself here. Okay? So hang on tight. God's not done with you. Paul gives us in verses 29 through 31 a very long list of assorted vices. And he does this to elaborate his point that man has been given over in the realm of morals and ethics. This is not an exhaustive list. This is an illustrative list. This is a representative list. This is a list that, that uh, speaks of society's ills. And society, by the way, is comprised of individuals. Okay? So these are individual wills that collectively become a societal problem, which collectively become humanity's problem. Now, a listing like this in antiquity was a was a relatively common form of rhetorical device. Okay? It's called a vice list v-i-c-e-a vice list it is used by both secular writers and the sacred writers it is commonly used matthew chapter 15 verse 19 i'm not going to turn to these but matthew 15 19 you might want to just mark them down jesus uses it this form of rhetorical device paul it's a favorite with him galatians 5 19 to 21 Paul uses it again, 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. Peter uses it, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. So it's commonly used throughout the New Testament. It was commonly used in secular writings of antiquity as well. And again, it's important to understand this is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list. It's to be a sample of man's depravity. Okay? Not an extensive treatment of it. It's merely a sample of it. And it illustrates a larger point. Now, because the list is illustrative, it, it exhibits no rigid, logical arrangement. Okay? It doesn't lend itself to some sort of rigid, logical arrangement. This leads to this, leads to this, leads to this kind of thing. Nor is it possible in this list... To give a, a, a rigid and distinct meaning to each and every word, there's a, there's a fair amount of overlap that goes on in a number of these descriptive words. nevertheless, and this by the way, is paul 's longest list, the longest vice list in the New Testament, that would be a good trivia question. The longest vice list in the New Testament is in Romans 1:28, or excuse me, 29 to 31. This list contains 21 items. 21 items. And there is, uh, based at least on the grammar of the Greek text, it it can be divided into three groups. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. I'm going to just, so we have some handles to hang on to here, I'm going to go ahead and and break it down into three groupings based on on the grammatical arrangement of or relationship of the words in the Greek text. There are four in the first listing. We'll get to it here in a minute. Four in the first listing, and they're somewhat general in nature. There are five in the next listing, and they all seem to have some relationship to envy. So there is, is, you know, Paul doesn't have an illogical mind. As he begins to write this down, there are some natural connections that begin to flow out. There are 12 in the final list, and that's kind of a hodgepodge, a variety of, of sins that even pagan societies would consider dangerous and detrimental to the social fabric. It's also important, as we're beginning to launch into this, to just note that the list fails to mention sexual sin. There are no sexual sins listed in this vice list. And the reason they're not mentioned here is because Paul has pretty thoroughly treated the topic in the verses that precede this, hasn't he? So he's not really talking about sexual vice here. He's he's talking about a different scope of social evil. That kind of social evil that is produced by a depraved mind. He's already talked about idolatry. He's talked about sexual perversion. And now when you tie this together with a, with a failure in the realm of morals and ethics and on a societal basis, you pull it all together and you go, man is in serious trouble. So let's look at the first list together. Being filled, Paul says, with all unrighteousness, wickedness, Greed and evil. <coughs> Verse 29. Now, he uh, he uses the adjective all here and it's used in a qualitative sense. All manner of would be a, a way you could translate that. Humanity is filled with all manner of unrighteousness, wickedness, greed and evil. That would be a good way to translate that. Paul also, when the... The, uh, the verb translated filled here, it's actually a perfect participle. And, and what that uh, emphasizes is, is that it's a condition in which humanity finds itself. Activity in the past, action in the past with ongoing consequences. So the idea is, is that humanity from the past and right up through the present is filled with all manner of unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. Okay, it's very general. That's so why I said this is a general listing. This is a general statement about the condition of humanity, a statement about the condition of your heart and mine. We're not going to go through each of the 21 uh, words separately, okay? We, we're not going to make it if we tried that. But we will look at a few here representatively. So let's just do that. The word wickedness, okay? paneria in the Greek, It refers to a callous cruelty, a desire to harm someone, okay? A callous cruelty, a desire to do harm to somebody. It speaks of a deliberate action and a desire to inflict injury on another. One of the common Greek titles for Satan is ha-paneros, the evil one. It's translated typically. Okay? The same basic word family. Satan is the one who deliberately attacks and seeks to, to destroy man. And so, mankind within his heart, right, has this same wickedness just like Satan. Just like Satan. Given the right provocation, every single one of us is capable of cruelty. There is a cruel streak that runs through every one of our hearts. If we are provoked in just the right circumstances, it'll manifest itself. Wickedness, he says, all men are next of greed. Greed. Greed spoken here is of an aggressive vice. It's an aggressive kind of, of thing. It's not a passive greed. This is an active greed. That takes no consideration of others, cares not for others, it's all about me and what I can get. It can manifest itself in a desire for material goods, but also in a lust for power or position or pleasure or many other things. The idea is it's not passive, it's active, it's aggressive. It's a passion for more regardless of how much you have. Okay? It doesn't matter how much you have. You can have a lot. You can have a little, a little. You can have it in between. And you can still be affected by this passion. It has become the basis of the American economy, by the way. Okay? This is the basis of the American economy. Greed. You've got to have it new. You've got to have it bigger. You've got to have it more. The old doesn't do. You bring in the new, right? Greed. We live by it. It's become ingrained in who we are. It's like salt water. The more you drink of it, the thirstier you become. Someone once asked John David Rockefeller, They said, uh, how much is enough? One of the richest men in the world of his day. How much is enough? And how he replied to them, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Greed. It takes us to our second list. Paul says, verse 29, that the humanity is full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. This second list begins with his statement about envy. and As one writer called it, envy and its four fruits. That's probably a good way to look at it. Envy and its four fruits. The sin of envy from which spring the fruits of murder, strife, deceit and malice. What is envy? Envy is a warped and twisted human condition that when encountering another person or another thing that is beautiful or noble seeks not to emulate it but to destroy it. That's envy. Envy has the is the has the inability or Or is the inability to appreciate that which is good and noble and beautiful and desirable and seek to destroy it rather than to emulate it? How old is envy? Go on back to Genesis chapter 4 and you'll find out how old it is. Go ahead, turn back there. Genesis 4, we're right back to the beginning. The roots of this tree go deep. They've been planted a long time. Verse 1, the man had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain repented of bringing the wrong kind of offering and then brought the right one and God accepted him. Is that how the story goes? It's not how the story goes at all. God says to Cain... Evil is lurking at the door. It seeks to consume you. It seeks to overpower you. You must resist it. Cain became very angry. Verse 5. His countenance fell. Angry, by the way, with God. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he what? He murdered him. He murdered him. Cain was envious of Abel and his relationship with God, and so rather than emulate the beauty of that relationship, Cain decided it would be far more... Expeditious to just butcher his own brother and bury him in a shallow grave. You can roll all the way ahead in the New Testament to James chapter 4. You want to remember envy? Genesis 4, James 4. How's that? A couple of bookends. James 4, verse 1, "...what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, and so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that it may be spent on your pleasures. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God?" He's writing to a church, by the way. He's writing to believers with this. Now, people find this hard to believe that it could actually descend to murder even among believers, but it can. It can. Don't underestimate the power of envy for destructive purposes. Envy and its four fruits, right? Murder, strife, Deceit. Malice. That takes us to our third list. This is a general catch-all list. This is a list that scoops up those other social relations that are broken. They're gossips, he says. slanderers, Haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Just hammers us. Begins with gossips and slanderers. Slanderers are those who trumpet their accusations and tales out loud and abroad. Whispers or gossips are the ones who speak it into people's ears. They do their character assassination privately. Writer of the Proverbs, Proverbs 18.8, says the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. The picture is like after somebody had a pastry and there's a little bit of the sugar left on the plate and they lick their finger and they scoop up the pieces and they want to get every single crumb. That's gossip. Gossips, slanderers, he says. Haters of God. Well, that one doesn't seem to resonate, right? How many people have told you, I don't hate God. I don't hate Him. I, I just don't need Him. Don't want anything to do with Him. He's not part of my life, I, but I don't hate Him. I would never say that I hate God. Really. Really. Just below the surface lies the heart of hatred and murder. You don't think you hate God? Just let Him interrupt your plans. Just let Him bring adversity into your life. Just let Him deal with you in a way that you consider to be unfair. Watch the hostility bubble right up and explode a volcano. Paul says the human heart hates God. Hates Him. That's why the human heart has to go away, right? We need a new heart in Christ. He says we are insolent. Hubrites in the Greek. We get the English word uh, hubris from this. Prideful. Maybe we can load this together. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. How's that? We'll put those three together. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. This is the sin of self-exaltation. This is the sin of, of rising above God, or at least attempting to rise above God. The idea that you don't need God. Rising above man. I think a great illustration would be... Uh, came out of your reading, actually, from uh, I think it was last week. Sennacherib, you remember him? The Assyrian king who came against uh, Israel, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, boasted about how he had, he had trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. He even went so far as audaciously say that God had told him to go ahead and conquer all these other nations and that God, the God of Israel was just like one of the gods of the other nations. So he elevated himself to the very pinnacle and of course the death angel slew 185,000 of his soldiers and broke the siege. Sennacherib. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. Here in the business world, those are considered virtues, right? You put them on the bottom of your resume. All right? I'm fit for the job because I am what? Arrogant and boastful. Make a great CEO. Here's one that falls into the list. Kind of goes, what? How did that get in here? Disobedient to parents. Right? We're going down this list. And it's this. It's that. No, no. Disobedient to parents. You Stop. I mean, I, I thought teenage rebellion was natural. right? I thought it was supposed to, you know, it was just kind of everybody goes through it. It is natural, by the way. It's natural of the fallen, depraved hearts. You know, God says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, the rebellion is like the sin of divination. That's what God thinks about that. Disobedient to parents, that rebellion young people against... Your parents, God hates that. That is a manifestation of wickedness, is what it is. To rebel against your parents is to rebel against the God who set them over you. It's not just kids, by the way, who rebel, right? We're all rebels by nature. By nature. Paul goes on to say that we are untrustworthy. Right? We are untrustworthy, verse 31. Literally treacherous. We are treacherous people. We are people that literally refuse to abide by covenants and treaties. Refuse to abide by covenants and treaties. That is, our word cannot be relied upon. We say that we're going to do something, and if something better comes along, we don't do it. We say we'll be somewhere, and we don't show up. We say we'll help someone and we don't come. When we go to enter into a business arrangement, we have to have a multitude of lawyers on both sides that draft documents. And I all my years in commercial banking. We used to have to draft documents that would you know, they would stand ten feet high. I'm sure it would have been nice if someone would just say, you know, I promise I'll pay you back such and such amount at such and such an interest such and such a date. That's all it should really take, right? Instead, we have mountains of documents, legions of lawyers, one of the most litigious nations in the world. Because our word is no good. Can't believe people anymore. When they tell you they'll do something, they won't do it. We're untrustworthy. Treacherous people. Paul goes on. He says we're unloving. Verse 31. Unloving. Astorge. Storge is, uh, is a Greek word for family love. It uses the, it's called the alpha primitive. It's the opposite of Storge, family love. That is, it's without family love. That's what he means by unloving. Without family love. One of the consequences of the, of the fall of mankind is the breaking of of the natural bonds of affection that should exist within a family. Parents should love their children. Children should love their parents. Children should love each other within the family. That's the way it's supposed to be. But by rejecting God from our thinking, now we live in a world and there lies the seeds within our hearts of not family love, but family hatred. As depravity takes hold of a culture, the natural bonds of family affection are broken down. When that happens, both the young and the old are in danger. We live in a culture today in which these natural bonds have been severed. We slaughter our children in the womb without a second thought. The highest courts in the land have established it as an unalienable right. It will not be long before we are full-blown practicing infanticide. Just like the ancient Romans. It will not be long before the older people are seen as an economic drag on society. In which the younger generations... Won't care to take care of them. Why should they? When they were young, there no one gave a thought to them. They'd abort them in a minute. If it was inconvenient, if it was economically inconvenient, what makes you think it won't turn the other way around? Those few that survive, it'll be payback time. We live in a broken, broken world. Unmerciful, Paul says. That's what he ends with, verse 31. Unmerciful. Merciful, pitiless. Pitiless. The kind of pitiless behavior that w- would cause people to flock to gladiatorial games and watch people kill one another for pleasure and entertainment. Remember, Rome was a highly advanced civilization, technologically advanced, producing philosophers and poets. Writers and musicians They had the most advanced legal system of the world of its day. They were not some primitive pagan peoples. Yet they would show up to the gladiator games and watch two men butcher each other and pay a fee to get in to see it. Verse 32, Paul gives us the culmination of the deep, dark descent of man. How low does it go? Verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul says that people do these things not because they're innocent and they don't know any better. People do this kind of evil. We do this kind of evil. Not because we can't distinguish between right and wrong. Not because we're not aware that there's a a penalty coming, an appropriate penalty. He says, right? They know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. It's not that people don't know. It's that they don't care. Education will never hold back sin. Any kind of public policy that thinks that all we've got to do is educate people, tell them about the dangers of sin, and they'll stop has no understanding of fallen human nature. The amazing thing here in verse 32 is not just that they know they deserve death for what they do and do it anyway. It's that they encourage others to join them in their folly. That's the bottom of the barrel. That's the bottom. By the way, there's a Distinct lack of reference to the law here. It talks about the ordinance of God. It doesn't use the law. Paul is, at this point, he's speaking to the pagan nations. He's speaking to the Gentiles. He's not speaking to the Jews. He'll take them up in chapter 2. So the ordinance being spoken of here is, is, an, is an internal ordinance that is wired within the human soul. It's part of the, imag- the imago dei, the being formed in the image of God, is understanding of God's requirements, basic requirements, and the reality of impending judgment. Everybody knows there's a judgment coming. Everybody knows. They know these behaviors, it says, are worthy of death. Not so much a physical death, but spiritual death, judgment, retribution. They know that judgment follows physical death. You go to any pagans, any any pagan culture, it doesn't matter how rank they are in their paganism. They are still well aware of the judgment of God. How do you know that? Well, you know because the scripture says, but Beyond that, by own observation, you can watch them as they seek to appease their gods. Why are they trying to appease them? Because they know there's a judgment coming. How do they know? It's been planted within them. We're told in verses 14 and 15, chapter 2, it's implanted within the human conscience. We're told in verse 21 of chapter 1, That it's part of how God has put us together. We know God is there. We know roughly what He requires. And we know there's judgment coming for those who refuse. Ever wonder why uh, the gospel encounters such violent reactions? You can talk to people about religion all day long. Nobody will bother you. Soon as you narrow in on Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice, wow! That's when the fireworks go off, because at that point in time, you're dealing with the issue of human sin and God's atonement. Love well, at the bottom rung of the ladder of human depravity is when people not only commit wickedness, but they applaud when others do it. Bible commentator E.F. Scott, back in 1947, he writes, This is really the darkest stroke in the whole picture. Not only were all those vices practiced, but the public conscience was dead and evil could exhibit itself as if it were good. This is the final and deadliest phase of utter social corruption. It's not about America now. Certainly could apply it to America in the year 2007, right? Right? Iniquity has become entertainment. Iniquity has become entertainment. Sin has a progressive nature to it. It engulfs a person and a society until they not only commit sin themselves, but they begin to advocate others follow along in their footsteps. All the while knowing they're heading... The deep dark abyss of destruction. What is an antidote? What's the antidote for all of this? Is it political activism? Does the church just need to get out, and if we started voting as a block, we could get the right people in office and we could reverse all of this mess? Is that the answer? Oh, please don't think that's the answer. Okay? If you think that's the answer, you have not been paying attention. These last weeks. The answer is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only answer. You cannot reform the human heart. It must be replaced. There must be divine surgery. The heart of stone must be removed, to use the metaphor in Ezekiel 36, replaced with the heart of flesh. It requires the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. The application of the atonement of Jesus Christ, it requires the new birth. It requires conversion. And thus it is done one individual at a time. How is a society preserved? It is preserved through the salvation of one individual at a time. We are desperately depraved. We need a powerful Savior. Paul says, back in verse 15 of this chapter, he says, For my part, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness from God is revealed by faith from first to last, as it is written, The righteous man shall live by faith. There is no other way. We do not have righteousness within us. We're going to stand in the presence of Almighty God. We need His righteousness applied to us. The Scripture tells us that comes by faith. It comes by faith. Believing that Christ's death on that cross was your death. He died as your substitute. By acknowledging you've got nothing to offer of God, you are bankrupt, deserving only of His judgment and condemnation. But if you will call out to Him, He will be merciful to you. And He will extend to you the merits of Jesus Christ, the sinless One who died and rose again. And you will be freed eternally and progressively in this life from the bondage of your own blackened soul. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess there is none righteous, no, not one. That we have all sinned, we have all turned aside, that the wickedness of our soul is so deep and extensive and disgusting that we deserve nothing but retribution. We have nothing to lay claim on Your mercy with. No good deed we have done or will ever do that will incline You towards us. We have nothing to boast about. Only shame. Lord God, please continue to extend Your mercy. Thank You for saving my soul. Thank You for helping me to come to see who I really am, that I might now become new in Christ. My worship is an expression of an understanding of what You have done and how much I needed it. Lord God, I pray that You would work even now in the hearts of those who are here within the hearing of my voice this morning who have yet to call out to Jesus Christ that are still trusting somehow in their own assumed righteousness. Lord, apply this text to them. Let them see Who they really are. And Lord, let them flee to the cross of Christ for relief. We pray in His name. Amen.